Hello, Neil Buttery here. Welcome to episode two, season two of the British Food History Podcast. Today, we're going to be looking at the form of curry with Dr. Christopher Monk. I'm not going to chunter on. I'm just going to say, before we get on with the episode, remember, if you have any questions or queries about anything in the episode today, or indeed any episode, please get in contact. You might feel I've got something wrong. You might have felt I've omitted something really important. If you've got any thoughts, I really do want to know about them. Please email neil at britishfoodhistory.com or find me on Twitter at Neil Buttery or Instagram, doctor, that's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery. Hey, if you like my podcast and blogs, please consider buying me a virtual coffee or a virtual pint or a virtual anything else for that matter. Please go to britishfoodhistory.com and click on the support the blog and podcast tab. Alternatively, you could become a subscriber for just three British pounds sterling per month. You get a load of extra stuff, including special features from the podcast. There might be full length interviews, cut sections, skits and extra recipes. In fact, there's a couple of extra cut sections coming out of this week's chat, but I'll tell you about that later. I'm also going to be including some extra blog posts, more about that at the end too, and some masterclass videos. Also, don't forget, please comment rate, subscribe, download, and please tell your friends all about the podcast and the blogs. A little bit of context before we start talking to Christopher. The Form of Curry is the first cookbook written in the English language. And I thought I'd just give it a little bit of context because we don't really talk about it in the interview. Richard II, who commissioned Form of Curry, was a contemporary of Geoffrey Chaucer, who wrote the Canterbury Tales and also wrote in English. English, it seems, it's going by the manuscripts and texts from around the time, just seems to pop up and begins to elbow out the French language. It was quite a risky thing to do. Geoffrey Chaucer was certainly worried about writing in English. But then when Richard's usurper, Henry Bolingbroke, was crowned Henry IV, his coronation for the first time was spoken in English. So Christopher Monk is studying the very copy that I looked at last season in episode two. I went to the John Rylands Library. And that copy turns out to be very special, much more so than I had realised at the time. I spoke to Christopher remotely in June of this year, 2021. We talked about, amongst other things, how the Manchester version compares to the other extant versions of Form of Curry, medieval blancmange recipes, the similarities between medieval and modern cooking. We also talk about how much we should worry about being authentic. Then I'll be back at the end of the interview to tell you a little bit more about next week's episode and what bits and bobs will be popping up on the blogs. Chat to you in a bit. Hi, Christopher. Thank you very much for agreeing to have a chat with me today about the form of curry. Hello, Neil. That's lovely. Thank you for asking me. What can you tell us about who wrote it or for whom it was written or who was reading it? I think, first of all, it's probably I'll refer to it as the work or the text form of curry. So that Mm -hmm. piece of work that we call form of curry was written down initially about the year 1390 approximately. Um, So towards the latter part of King Richard II's reign. Mm -hmm. And it's a compilation of recipes and there's a few uh, little culinary notes that we can throw in as well. And they were provided by the master cooks of King Richard. And the um, actual meaning of the word form of curry is quite interesting because uh, form the word form means kind of the correct procedure of doing something in this context anyway it means that 
and then sure. curry, nothing to do with curry, but it means cookery. So this is, I suppose, if you were literally word for word translating, you could translate it as correct procedure or correct method of cookery or how to cook, as Delia Smith would put it. In terms of thinking about the collection of recipes and what, what we're actually looking at when we look at this book, it's quite different from modern recipes, probably mm-hmm. quite obviously, because it doesn't really have um, the detail that you'd see in modern recipes. So you don't get the quantities of ingredients, for example, very rarely, or you might get some kind of vague reference to um, a great portion of wally nuts, walnuts, or something like that. So you do get those kind of references to quantities. In a sense, that makes sense because this is not really a book that's being used for sort of a small dinner party you know, where the king sure. is there with a few people. It's essentially a book that uh, helps and assists with mass catering or posh mass catering, elite cuisine, but it is still mass catering. You could be talking about an awful lot of people within King Richard's household. And the book is a kind of um, a go-to for the master cook or master cooks that were working for Richard and they would probably in terms of who would be reading it you could perhaps imagine one of the master cooks consulting with Richard's steward the household steward and the perhaps coming up with a menu the developing a menu um, and so they could they might just want to come up with some ideas for a bit of variety so there'd be that mm-hmm. kind of consultation that would go on and I think it's fair to say that at least in its its probable original form, that is how the book would have been used. It isn't mm-hmm. necessarily how some of the versions that have survived would have been used. So there are some uh, role versions that are, prob- are probably unlikely to have been used in that in that way. The, the other thing about it as a sort of collection of recipes that makes it different and, and perhaps a little bit alien to us in the 21st mm-hmm. century is that you don't really get any timings so not only do you no. not know how many ingredients you know the quantities to use but you don't necessarily know how long to cook cook things for you do sometimes get again some kind of vague indication so if you're cooking some kind of pottage so something cooked in a pot you might be told for example um look that it be standing make sure that it's thick standing literally so that oh, would indi- like yeah. stand your spill yeah. up in yeah. it kind of okay yeah. <laughs> so at least you you've got some idea that you've got to let it cook down a bit to reduce as we would say today so there's that kind of indication with time but you don't really get any sort of you know 180 degrees for 35 minutes kind of thing obviously yeah, I must admit, I'm a fan when it comes to uh, recipes that rather than teaching you or rather than giving a list of times, um, it tells you what to look out for. So yeah. you can build up a bit of a, yeah, I a, think, a, a chef's intuition. Yeah, I think that's I think helpful. that's actually quite good. Yeah. Although I think they might go a little bit too far in the form of curry. I've seen it in other manuscripts. They might be later than medieval. They all kind of merge into one for me a little bit. But don't they say things like, Something would take the time it takes to say the Lord's prayer. Yeah, uh, yeah, there are those. There's, um, I think there is one one recipe. I think you know when you're making some kind of. I think it was something to do with a confectionery. There was some some kind of detail about that. It might have been saying um, either the Lord's prayer or a Hail Mary or something like that. Or mm-hmm. sometimes they give walking distances. I believe if this might be the odd recipe here and there. In some ways, I want to kind of demystify the form of curry because a lot of the things are familiar. You know, there's plenty of the basic cooking methods or preparations are still, you know, things are chopped and things are cut or chopped up 
it's small or they're ground or mince. There's lots of mincing and grinding going on, and they use parboiling. Yeah, lots of parboiling. Uh, you yeah, see, don't yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> and, and simmering as well, or um, seething. As the word probably in context often refers to simmering because they use yeah, the it's word a better boil word than well. simmering. Yeah, yeah. Seething's yeah. better than simmering. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> but before we continue about this, I just wanted to quickly ask, what drew you to medieval cookery or the form of curry? Um, in the first place? Well, I think it, it's sort of two things in a way. I guess going back quite a long time, so going back more than, you know, I mean, probably more than 40 years ago, when I was a kid, so when I was about eight or nine, I, I got curious about cooking, probably from watching it, probably even more from eating things. I liked baked things. So I kind of got this early memory of experimenting, not particularly with my mum's permission or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I remember experimenting, baking cakes and having a go with some some disasters as well. So I've got this memory of being interested in food and cooking. And I did as a uh, high school, I did do my O-level in home economics. And uh, Mm -hmm. I'm very, I very proudly say I was the very first boy at my school to ever do an O-level in cookery and made quite a fuss of because of that that's because usually the boys that wanted to do cookery were trying to get out of some harder subject like physics because of the way they used to strand things so there is that background of cooking and I kept on you know being a sort of amateur baker and cook and experimenting with things but then my kind of uh, profession more recent in more recent years has been um, to do with a lot of the work involved in that has been to do with looking at manuscripts. I just remember a couple, maybe two or three years ago, thinking I must have a look at this form of curry, which I'd heard about because it was at the university where I was based at Manchester University. And so John Ryland's library is part of the university and that's where they had this copy of form of curry. I thought I must go and check it out. So I actually checked it out on the digital facsimile at first. And I thought, oh, this looks really interesting and actually not too difficult to read. So the version that you're using at the John Ryland's library, what kind of um, pedigree does it have? Can we say? Do we know when it was written? We do. Um, in, in very plain terms, it's the most important version of the form of curry. Okay significantly so it's not that's not really been recognized because for a long time in in the area of food history when everyone anyone mentions form of curry and they know anything about like the edition that was written in 1985 mm-hmm. uh, by um constant hyatt and sharon butler they're both actually not you know they they both passed away sharon butler passed away not long after it was done and and constant hyatt a few years ago um but that is um, an edition that is based on all of the extant manuscripts that contain form of curry in one form or another, except the editors didn't know about the John Rylands one. Which oh. is, and, they, and subsequently, like a, a couple of years afterwards, um, Constant Hyatt said that had they known about it, that they would have used that as the, their base the Rylands versions, the, the the foundation text, the base text for their edition. I'm looking just at the John Rylands one because I have a slightly different view about manuscripts and, and to an extent probably book culture in general. So that edition that you've got, as, as useful as it is, is not representative of any of the versions of Form of Curry that survive. It has 205 recipes in and mm-hmm. none of the versions have 205 
Oh. And many, many of them just have a, uh, they're, they're not complete. And some of the, the, the versions we can't, I don't think, I think Hyatt did subsequently say this, you can't really refer to them as copies of form of curry because they're sort of extracts of recipes that have been mixed and compiled with other recipes. So Yeah, because they're real working yeah. documents. These yeah. People were yeah. writing their own recipes at the end or in margins and things. So well, you it's... get things like that. But you also get the fact that people compile, were compiling miscellanies. So uh, where the, in other words, um, a book or codex that has all sorts of texts in it and they have some cookery recipes some um medical recipes oh, I see. and all sorts of things bits sure. of history and and in one way or another they either were, were compiled at the time like that or they eventually end up like that and so the only um the kind of the reason the john ryland's version is so important then is because none of the other versions can be called ricardian documents they weren't produced during the time of Richard's reign, whereas the John Ryland's one was. Um, the the, ah, the handwriting okay. has been dated to the second half of the 14th century. Uh, so that obviously fits. Richard ruled from 1377 to 1399. What's even more important is the little book itself. It is a proper codex. It is a cookery book. It's not a mm -hmm. not a role. It's, it, it was designed like that. And it actually says in its introduction in red ink so it's a rubricated introduction or preface and it says this is a copy it uses a latin word that means an official document of richard ii it uses the present tense it says this form of curry is compiled of ah, the okay. master cooks of richard ii uh, goes on to say by assent of his his doctors and his philosophers so that's um Masters of Physique and Philosophies, I think is how, it, how it's put. And the only other version, and there are about eight other versions in one form or another, the only other version that does have an introduction in it is the more famous British Library Roll version. That one has this a, a version of this introduction, but interestingly, it's written in the past tense. So it says this was compiled by the Master Cooks of Richard. And then it adds something that's not in the Rylands one, and it des describes Richard as, uh, in past tense, as being the foremost host or gourmet of all the um, Christian kings. So that's a, a document that was produced. The date that the British Library gives is 1420, so it's 20 years after mm -hmm. Richard had, had died. So that was, pro in my, my theory is that it was produced by Henry V, who was close to Richard II and was, was trying to um, resurrect the reputation of Richard II that had been completely trashed by his father, Henry IV, mm -hmm. who'd possibly arranged his death, Richard's death. He usurped the throne. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, so once he became king, he did he had Richard's body reinterred and he promoted the use of English vernacular, and this is an English vernacular text, not a French text, not a, a Latin text. And he did, he was brought, he was mentored by Richard II whilst his father had been sent into exile. So there was this connection between them. So that's a side story, but that's a, that later one, the more famous one, is, mm -hmm. is not a functioning cookery text necessarily in role form. It's a way of memorializing, I think, Richard. Whereas the John Ryland's version, again, written in the present tense, you know, this is a document of Richard II, makes it stand out. You know, it's very important um, text.
very important copy of, or version, I should say, rather than copy. So that brings us to the research that you're doing. What specific yeah. questions are you asking? The aim of it is to produce an accessible edition and translation into modern English of the text, the text that's just in the John Rylands version. I think I want people to realise the significance of the Manchester John Rylands manuscript. It was designed the way it is what it says it is. It, it actually says in the as part of the introduction I referred to that there are 194 recipes and it then gives the contents lists all the recipes, numbers them, and then the, then the going, then it goes into the method of each of the recipes. They're all numbered by the, the, the contemporary scribe. It's not a later edition. So this, this book stands as it should, as an individual finalised work. So that's part of what I'm doing. So mm -hmm. I've got to try and get that across in a way that has some appeal. You know, I don't want to kind of dumb down the detail, but I do want to make it accessible to people. So one of the things I'm hoping to do is present the book in a way that would have an appeal to a broader than academic interest. So it's going to actually be probably separated into chapters that are, are, are more logical to us. So there'll be mm -hmm. a chapter on, uh, say, vegetable dishes, chapter on meat dishes, chapter on poultry dishes, pastry, sweet dishes, etc. Sure. So I think that that may actually work better for a general audience. So the idea is that somebody can read it in the Middle English if they want to. There'll be a, a, a modern translation underneath and there'll be a detailed commentary for every recipe, which will go into context of where you might see this dish elsewhere, how, how it may have been eaten. Some of, If the ingredients are unusual, they'll be explained. So there's also mm -hmm. going to be a kind of very comprehensive glossary with uh, information about ingredients, equipment that's referred to, methods of cooking. So in a way, the idea is that, yes, it's kind of, it's underpinned by kind of robust scholarship, but it's a book that an enthusiast could read or someone that wants to really fully understand what is meant by the, the Middle English text and then have mm -hmm. a go at replicating things. So in a way, just providing people that are interested in historical food and medieval sort of reenacting or recreation of medieval recipes, just give them a, a more solid foundation for mm -hmm. doing that. It's not that I'm like necessarily reinventing uh, the wheel or, uh, I mean, I, I, I have to acknowledge there's been an awful lot of scholarship that I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing without that being in place. And I think I'm just building another layer of insights really so that people can just understand things a little bit better and I think that's always a good thing because of the work that I do I um it's very important to me that we make food history come alive I want to produce a book that does the same thing that that makes that 14th century cookery of Richard II come alive really and and give them a much better idea of of what it was and how if they want to they can recreate it. Yeah, and I'm a big believer in trying to demystify older recipes in general, not just medieval yeah. ones. There's a lot of strange ingredients in there, uh, ingredients mm. that we can't use anymore, even if we wanted to, <laughs> especially when it comes to little game birds and things like that. But when you do look through the book, you don't need a trained eye for certain things, certain familiar things yeah. to pop I think out. a lot of it's really familiar, really, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think if you're of a certain generation, like 
my age or older, like my parents' generation, so people that are in their 80s and 90s, they'll, um, you know, they've been perhaps more familiar with some of the dishes, those that have got offal in, for example, mm -hmm. they would have been been used to um, eating offal, perhaps, of one form or another, and they wouldn't necessarily go all squeamish about it, like a lot of people do today, as soon as you mention liver or kidneys or, or whatever. So I think the familiarity might be even, even um, stronger for mm -hmm. older folk but i mean a lot of the things they're all they're all things that we still eat chicken and i mean they do use capons a lot and i remember as a kid having a capon you know it wasn't very common but you know once a year we'd probably have a capon yeah in the us you could just pop into a supermarket and buy a capon oh right but i mean a lot of the things i mean there's lots of pork recipes there are in form of curry there are no beef recipes which is interesting oh really no how um, funny that i've not noticed that <laughs> there are beef recipes probably you know in recipes that date either before or after but there aren't in any form of curry mm -hmm. or at least we we're not directly mentioned i mean perhaps if broth is referred to we can assume that it may be a beef broth that sure. kind of thing lots of vegetables and fruits that we know about cabbages leeks garlic spinach loads of herbs that are probably familiar to us plus some herbs that have lost familiarity i think you of course don't get things like potatoes and <laughs> tomatoes Indeed. those kind of things no turkey um, no turkey <laughs> um, <laughs> but you do get sugar a lot of people think yeah, that sugar, sugar is a new yeah. world new world yeah, food yeah. but it's not yeah so no, i'll be surprised it, yeah there's lots of lots of sugar uh, or it, it was uh, the 14th century i think was when in elite cuisine sugar was starting to to take off and it was used generally in the form of curry it's used as a an, as a spice in effect mm -hmm. um rather than uh to overtly sweeten a dish to make it a sweet dish although sometimes it might be done that way but generally when sugar is referred to it's in a context of using it with salt and other spices and sure and and there are some early anglo-norman re recipes that refer to sugar uh, being a kind of a balance for things so not used for in excess but used to counter as a counterpoint we might say. it's like today if you're making a sort of tomato based yeah. sauce they wouldn't have been using tomatoes either of course no because um, <laughs> that's a new world but a pinch of yeah sugar in a yeah. slightly you know two tart tomato sauce can make a really yeah, big difference definitely. and it can just be a quarter of a teaspoon yeah yeah so it's those kind of things it, it's yeah. Definitely, maybe not detectable as no. sweet, but it certainly makes things taste, yeah, a lot rounder and more of a seasoner, seasoning yeah. rather. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a good way of thinking of it as a seasoning. I mean, there are exceptions where it there are there's the odd recipe where it indicates that you're looking for a good quantity of sugar. Yeah, they like sweet chicken soup, mm. didn't they? Mm. Well, they the kind of um, dishes that were kind of rice based, so pottages that had like rice or rice flour in. But quite often the meat they used was capon or chicken and they would use sugar. Sometimes they would indicate that it was quite a bit of sugar. And I've I've experimented with doing this in one of the one of the dishes I tried. And I started off with very little sugar and then increased it. And I actually surprised I surprisingly found the one with the more sugar actually had more flavour. So it's not like it's overpoweringly sweet, but it does something to the flavour of chicken it kind of enhanced it it gave i don't know maybe to use that probably overused modern term it kind of improved the umami for some reason i, I think right that's okay what, i think that's what was happening speaking of chicken and rice there is uh -huh. blamange blamange in there <laughs> yes 
which doesn't sound like it's got much to do with chicken or rice, <laughs> seeing as it's a kind of wobbly dessert these days. Okay, so uh, yes, here's the recipe. Blanc Mongeur. Yeah. Shall um, I read it out? Yeah, go on. In my best Middle English um, yeah. accent. It says, take a capoons and see them, then take them up, take almonders, blanch it, green them and lay them up with the same broth referring back to a broth that had previously been used. So that's saying there, take the capons, mm-hmm. cook them, essentially, take them out of the, the pot, and then take blanched almonds and grind them up, and you make a kind of milk, what they call an almond milk, using the broth. And then it goes on to say, cast the milk in a pot. So that's what it's referring to. It's not talking about cow's milk. Mm-hmm. It's talking about the almond milk. Wash your rice. And do there too, and let it see. So wash your rice, as we still do today. Put it in the pot and cook it. Then I take the brawn of the capoons, tear it small, and do there too. Um, in this context, brawn is thought to mean the breast meat. It doesn't always ah, okay. can just basically mean meat. Yes, the meat of the capon. But um, there are there's a there's a, um, a, a sort of um, comparable recipe elsewhere that refers to a brawn and the thighs so the assumption is that when it comes to poultry ah, okay the brawn is meaning the breast because non-breast meat is often specified elsewhere as thighs or whatever so mm-hmm. tear it small and do there too so you tear it into pieces and add it take wheat grace white fat so they'd have been using something like lard mm-hmm. sugar and salt, so there you go, there's your seasoning, sugar and salt, and cast therein. Let it seethe, so they're cooking it some more. Then a mess it forth and flourish it with anise in confit, red or the wheat, and with almonds fried in oil and serve it forth. So after cooking it, you're told to mess it forth, which means sort of dish it up and serve it. Mm-hmm. And they're decorating it, flourishing it with um, aniseed seeds, which have been candied. So that's what anise in confit means and also you still see them nowadays don't you yeah 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 the italians still do them don't they They still i was actually looking at some trying to see whether i could get hold of some aniseed ones rather than Mm -hmm. actually make them myself (laughs) but um and you can buy uh, indian uh, fennel seeds which are quite similar that are yes i always use those ones if ever they're lovely yeah i should should probably say these are the foods that richard the second's eating and it's pretty much the same food being eaten in other courts around Europe. Everyone's yeah, talking into yeah. blancmange. There's going to be yeah. small variations, isn't there? But it's yeah, essentially I, going to be the same dish. How much do you uh, worry about being authentic when you uh, try to recreate a recipe? Do you puzzle yeah. over it and fret about it? And then, because you see, for me, I think, oh, I'm just going to give it a go how I think yeah. it's done. And then troubleshoot afterwards. Right. Um, and it was the same back when I was doing my uh, science back before I was doing all this kind of stuff, there were people in my labs who would worry so much about right. controlling the experiment <laughs> that they never did an experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Where I was, oh, let's just shove it in, see what happens, then we'll go from there. I think that, that, that that's a, a very viable way of approaching it, really, to be honest. I, I'm, not, I'm not like a million miles away from that, but if I'm, if I'm doing something for myself, then I will be more like that. If I'm doing a video on something on my youtube channel plug plug if i'm doing that then i i feel a responsibility to make sure i fully understood what the words in that recipe mean everyone i have to really get it 
And then if I want to, I can adapt it or change it. But I feel like I've got to have the foundation first before I can tweak it. And <clears throat> excuse me. And sometimes I do tweak it. You know, I do. I'll even in my own mind, I'm I'm improving the recipe. And I actually don't think that's particularly a problem because it's it's easy to think that you that these recipes are rigid, rigidly um, written down or that's the only way of doing this. But as we've already said, there are, there may be some recipes like blancmange uh, that occur in lots of recipes, but there'll be differences. I would say most people have a chili recipe. Yeah, yeah. Like everyone would have had a blancmange recipe. Everybody eats chili. Uh, no two recipes are the same, but they're all chili. Yeah. You know, so true. as long as you don't veer too much from it, well, I think you, you yeah, should be fine, I, I think. I, I mean, I'm very happy to adapt my recipes to modern modern methods. Mm. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I like watching videos where, they, you know, they, they're perhaps exploring more simple ways of cooking the food. And I certainly appreciate, you know, people that are working in the area of, um, of experimental archaeology where they're trying mm. to discover how things were actually cooked, that kind of thing. But I'm quite happy to use my blender and my yeah, hob, no, me too. my ceramic hob and whatever, those kind yeah. of things. My induction hob, actually. So that's very modern. And when it comes to the ingredients, I think I'll try and get something that represents the medieval ingredient. I mean, perhaps people don't necessarily grasp the fact that a lot of ingredients that um, I suppose we could call them the we have analogs of them today, but they're not they're not the same. So things like the cheeses in the medieval period were you know very localized and very individual, and that's starting to come back in England and Britain now. You do get these artisanal cheeses, which that industry was practically destroyed in the 20th century in this country. Sure. So yeah. that's coming back again. But things like breeds of animals we're not the same uh, when it comes to beef the way beef has been developed in recent uh, times has changed the, the texture of beef and it's become more tender and things like that that's yeah and they're usually uh, slaughtered when they're much older yes because there, there weren't yeah. beef cattle and dairy cattle like they are now so there'd be no tender super tender meat i guess well i suppose they had veal so i suppose that's where they're getting the tender meats from the reason that i kind of wanted to ask about that is you see hear people or see people uh, on the internet saying, oh, there's no such thing as doing authentic mm. historical cooking. You're not cooking on wood. You you, you know, you, you can't control this. You can't control that. The ingredients are completely different. And I just always think, don't be such a spoil spot. Well, precisely, <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's so many things you could kind of apply that, that principle, that erroneous principle i think really too and 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 never engage with you know you could say the same things about trying to understand um anglo-saxon poetry you know and even if you are just seven tenths of the way there yeah. or maybe less yeah. i think it's much more evocative than reading about it and never yeah. actually trying yeah, it and, out and the actual trying it out informs uh, i found that it that it has informed my academic research you, you shift, I've shifted my ideas on some things because I've tried it. So what would you say for anybody who's thinking, I'm going to have a bash at having a go at yeah. making a, a medieval recipe from the form of curry or from one of the other manuscripts? What would you kind of suggest people do? Um, I've looked at some things and I think probably 
I'd say the most consistently reliable um, uh, website that I've come across is medievalcookery.com. That's a guy called Daniel Myers and some of the colleagues that have produced recipes. I think he's quite careful with the way he um, interprets recipes. The other book that I find quite good was Maggie Black's book, The Medieval Cookbook. She's got 50. Yes, I have that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's good. Yeah. Um, 50 yeah, authentic good. recipes. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, she does a lot of stuff in the form of curry, but she does use some other um, books as well, including some French recipes. And I like what she's done there. She's clearly someone that knows how to cook. Indeed, and of course, there are, there's all the good work you're doing online. Yeah, I'm kind of a, I'm a, I'm a plodder, really. I, <clears throat> I've tried to focus on recipes that people might find interesting or would have a go at. So the recent one that I did on hot and spicy sauces is the, all the recipes, the three sauces, they're dead easy to make, really. I think that's a really good one that I like because if if it's warm and hot outside and you're doing barbecued food, like chicken, or these sauces, all three of them go really well. And they're sure. really distinctive. They're all distinctive. And I think you know, there's a pepper sauce, this lordly sauce, which is very beautifully spiced, lots of different spices. And then there's this ridiculously punchy raw garlic and herb green sauce which i is my favorite and then on my my website i've got a few blog posts that are more about experiments that i've tried to do what's the, what's the name of your uh, by the way my uh webs my youtube channel is called monks modern medieval cuisine and my uh, website is modern medieval cuisine.com Thanks to Dr. Christopher Monk for that great chat. I'll add too that he's also on Twitter, at Monk Cuisine. He's got some really great stuff online, and I'll have to get him on again, because there's loads I didn't talk to him about. For example, subtleties, one of my favourite topics. They're foods made for theatre, and they're not eaten. They're a separate course, and some crazy stuff was created. And mock foods as well, where he disguise one food as another. He's got a really good recipe on his website, actually, where he makes a capon dish that uses hard-boiled egg yolks to be disguised as quinces, and they're very convincing. If you like the sound of what Dr. Monk is doing, please go to his blog and have a look at his content, have a look at his project, and if you approve, perhaps you could donate some money to help in his research to write the book. He's doing really good work here and it should be rewarded, not just applauded. Links will, of course, be in the show notes. There's quite a few medieval recipes on my two blogs, including one for Blancmange, which turned out rather different to how Christopher described it, I must admit. That was a couple of years ago now. There's one about the form of curry itself too, giving more information about its history. Uh, There's a rose-flavoured dessert and there's turkey neck puddings. I've also written a brand new one for subscribers... In fact, it's the very first recipe in form of curry, a medieval staple called frumenty, which is a kind of wheaty porridge slash risotto. Your cup floweth over with medieval content. And Natch, there are links to those in the show notes too. Right, it's time to go. I hope Christopher has given you some inspiration when it comes to cooking medieval or indeed any historical cuisine. Do what you think's best. Interpret how you think it should be interpreted, then go and see what other people have done. Control what you can, and just don't worry about what you can't. And remember, use your cook's intuition. The scribes who wrote those recipes assumed you'd be doing that anyway. Next week, we're going to be looking at savouries, an almost forgotten course of a meal just before dessert, which used to be very popular. 
If you've got any questions, comments or queries about anything from this episode or any other episode in the podcast so far, please get in contact via email neil at britishfoodhistory.com or twitter at neil buttery or instagram at doctor that's dr underscore neil underscore buttery like i've already mentioned i'm hoping to do some bonus post bag episodes at the end of the season so if you think i've got something wrong or you think i've missed something out or that you've got something to add please get in contact if you can support the podcast and blogs by treating me to a virtual coffee pint or anything else you can also subscribe to my Easter eggs for just £3 a month. I've uploaded a couple of deleted scenes from my chat today, one on the mysteries of medieval pastry, and another one about unfamiliar ingredients, and when recipes don't turn out particularly delicious. There's some subscriber-only content on the blog too, in the form of a post about that medieval staple, frumenty. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and to leave comments and ratings on whatever platform you prefer to procure your podcasts. I would be eternally grateful. Until next time, cheerio.